Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is The Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. Coming up, Belinda Carajalios on her ejection from the PC caucus, John Carpe on fighting for your civil liberties, and CBC is pushing an agenda. But what else is new? The Andrew Lawton Show starts right now. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another edition of The Andrew Lawton Show, Canada's most irreverent talk show here on True North. We are going to get right into the thick of things in this particular show because it has been a busy week and a busy few days for politics, not just in Canada, but specifically in Ontario, where a member of provincial parliament, which if you're outside of Ontario, is the Ontario equivalent of an MLA, was booted from the Progressive Conservative Government's caucus after she voted against a measure that she says was a gross overreach of the authority of the Premier's office. The bill in question was Bill 195, a bill that would ultimately give the Premier's office the right to make some unilateral changes with regard to Ontario's emergency declaration, thus making it so that legislators, the people elected to manage the day-to-day affairs of the province, wouldn't have to or wouldn't even be able to. Belinda Carajalios, who we've actually had on this show before, she is an MPP for the riding of Cambridge and also, as the name would suggest, the wife of Jim Carajalios, the uh, former leadership candidate for the Conservative Party of Canada. Belinda Carajalios voted against this bill, her own government's bill, and moments later, it seemed, was actually kicked out of the PC caucus. And I want to talk about not just the lead up to her voting against this bill, but also the ejection from caucus and what it means for the state of the conservatives in Ontario and also what it means for the state of democracy and the ability for representatives to actually represent their constituents. Joining me on the line now is Cambridge MPP, now independent Cambridge MPP, Belinda Carajalios. Belinda, good to talk to you again. Thanks very much for coming on today. Good morning, Andrew. Good to see you again. Thank you for having me. So let's begin with the actual crux of this, the decision that you made to vote against this bill. You were talking about in a press release that you sent out when you voted against this, that there had been a lot of legal analysis, a lot of criticism from lawyers, civil liberties experts, even the the Nurses Association, that this would be a, a gross overreach. Even so, your entire government or your former party was going after this, supporting this. Why was this for you the hill to die on? So, you know, back in uh, November of last year, I tabled my first private member's bill, Bill 150. And that was in regards to transparency and uh, um, transparency and accountability with internal party elections. And, you know, democracy has always meant a great deal to me and to to many, many Ontarians and Canadians. And... uh, you know, when I got my briefing on the bill, so I, I got it um, before caucus did because of my role as a parliamentary assistant to the Solicitor General. And I got the briefing and, you know, the um, without actually seeing the actual hard copy of the bill, let me make that clear. And um, it sounds okay, right? It sounds like, yeah, we need to have flexibility um, with these emergency orders just in case. Fine. Uh, then we got a, the following day a really short briefing at caucus. It could have been later that day. But uh, anyways, it was um, either the day after or the same day uh, and the bill was tabled right so there was no there's no real room to, to have any input on this so then I got a copy of the bill right here um, got a copy of the bill and I decided to to read through it on my own 
and to cross-reference to the acts that are um, referenced in here. So the Health Act and the Emergency Measures Protection Act, the EMPCA, I believe is the right acronym. Um, and what was what really stood out for me was the fact that, okay, we can have this flexibility um, and it had to be, you know, we can renew it every 30 days, but there was no debate. There was no vote. There was no democratic process through the whole thing. Um, and that did not sit well with me because, sorry, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say that what's interesting there is that when the when the p pandemic was in its very early stages, this seems very similar to what the federal government under Justin Trudeau tried to do. And, and everyone in Canada, especially on the right, was finding that unconscionable and outrageous. And here we are a few months later, and it sounds like the exact same thing was what was being put forward provincially by many of the same people who were criticizing the federal government. Precisely. And and that was the, that was very glaring to me. It was, you know, like you said, March. In March of this year, uh, Justin Trudeau tried to do this and everyone was up in arms and, oh my gosh, he doesn't care about democracy. He wants a dictatorship. And then, um, you know, the provincial uh, conservatives are doing it in Ontario and no one says anything. And people are saying, well, you, you got to trust us. We're going to do the right thing. And I'm saying, no, you cannot trust any one government. I don't care what political stripe you are. And, you know, you Democrat, liberal, conservative, you still need to have some type of discourse and debate. Uh, that is what uh, Canadians and Ontarians deserve, and that's what we should be doing. <clears throat> Pardon me, because at the end of the day, as uh, elected representatives, we are accountable to our constituents. And if I have one individual making decisions for all of Cambridge without actually consulting with them, I have a real problem with that. A lot of the media coverage about this has indicated that some of your colleagues in caucus and the Ontario government felt blindsided by this. And I, I know that there was, because MPPs have acknowledged as much, a lot of uh, dispute over this bill behind the scenes. Doug Ford, however, said, the Premier of Ontario, that you, quote, never said a word, unquote, to him before voting against this bill. Is that true? So I tried multi on multiple occasions to reach out to him. Uh, he was in Cambridge twice. Uh, it was not, it's not two weeks ago. Um, and it was the Tuesday and the Friday. So the Tuesday he was here at Eclipse Automation uh, because they received some uh, funding through the Ontario Together grant. And um, I said to him, so understanding when, when he's on these tours, um, it is, it's very fast moving. So he's surrounded by staff and it's like, okay, get to the podium, do the announcement, do the media, boom, boom, boom. And so as we had left the building and there was a few seconds, I said, Premier, I need to speak to you. Uh, it's quite urgent. He said, great, I'll call you tonight. Not a problem. Okay. Uh, I waited. The call did not come. I spoke to uh, two different individuals at the Premier's office over the, the next couple of days, and I made it clear that I was waiting for a call. My One of my staff uh, members um, had uh, communicated to the Premier staff as well that MPP Carhalios is uh, eagerly waiting her call. Uh, and I actually said to one of the Premier's office staff members, I said, okay, I'm waiting for the call, but you know what? I understand he's busy. Here's what my issue is. And I laid it out. And I said, you know, Bill 195, I'm very uncomfortable with it. Here's why. Here's how I think you can fix it. And here's why, you know, here's why I think it's going to be damaging if we don't have some type of debate. I said, even if, even if you only have a debate and voting at that select committee, then at least there's some type of debate and, uh, and vote on this. But on any stage of this, uh, um, now that the bill has passed and received royal assent, um, there is no debate. There is no voting on any aspect. The premier or his designate can make decisions to extend emergency orders, to to um, um, amend them for whatever the reason may be. And um, 
then it goes through this select committee uh, where they can ask questions and answers. But at the end of the day, the decision is made kind of like the bill, right? You know, we're, we're provided with this, this update, this briefing, um, and you can say what you like about it. But at the end of the day, the bill has been written with the intention of it being tabled and no one's feedback is really going to be um, implemented into it. So you had raised very specific and concrete concerns with the premier's office, you say, even yes. proposed remedies. Did you ever say that you would not vote for the bill or could not vote for the bill in its unamended form? I didn't. I said I was very uncomfortable. I never used the words, I will not vote for the bill. Uh, but I did express my discomfort. Uh, and I said, it, you know, it's what we're doing isn't right. We, we can't, we are for less government as conservatives, not more government, uh, especially uh, not unaccountable government. Um, so, you know, it was something I struggled a lot with this because it was a two week period. It was done quite quickly. There was time, time allocation on the bill. The bill didn't go to a committee like bills usually do after a second reading for, for again, more debate and, and potential changes to be made. Mm -hmm. So uh, I struggled. I struggled a lot with this because I knew what the right thing was to do, uh, which is to vote no. I knew that's what I was hearing from my constituents. I know that at the end of the day, my job is to represent them. Uh, but I was uh, I was afraid because I know uh, from past experience what happens, right? So, for example, when the marijuana legislation um, was being pushed through near the beginning of, uh, of our mandate, uh, I was uncomfortable with that as well. And I did speak to the premier face-to-face -face about that. It was after question period and uh, we spoke face-to-face. -face and I said, you know, we, we don't have any control over the legalization of the stuff, right? We just created the, the framework around it. Mm -hmm. And I was saying, why not push the legal age to 25 when the brain has stopped developing? Because I had spoken to some doctors saying that if if uh, an individual is more prone to to uh, depression or, or bipolar disorder or, or things like that, exposing them to, them to marijuana at an earlier age um, compounded the issue or created additional issues. And I was told, well, no, we can't do that. It's it's it's, it's just easier if it's 19. And I'm saying, well, what about 21? Like, can we meet somewhere in the middle? Um, and so that day after I spoke to him, one of his uh, staffers called me and threatened me on my drive home. If you ever want to be a minister, you're going to vote the right way. And it, it's just crazy because, you know, at the end of the day, I'm not a, um, excuse the term, a bum to warm a seat, right? I am supposed to be a voice for the people of, of the riding of Cambridge. So I was a team player, Andrew, and I voted in favor of the bill, even though I was extremely uncomfortable. Um, and then, you know, during one of our campaign promises is was to get rid of Tarion. Uh, well, we didn't do that. We made some changes. But I was a team player and I voted for that as well. And it was this bill, Bill 195, where we were essentially, you know, ignore, <clears throat> pardon me, ignoring democracy and, um, you know, saying we're going to give the premier all these powers where I said, no, no more. Like, um, at what point does people come before party? Uh, and that was the breaking point for me. This was not a confidence bill. So if this bill had been defeated, it wouldn't have triggered the fall of government. Why was it whipped then? Why was a vote against it something that justified expulsion from caucus? It, I, it doesn't make sense to me. It really doesn't make sense to me because, as you said, it was not a confidence bill. It wasn't even a campaign promise. So I, I get that there are some things that you probably shouldn't vote against. Uh, and at the end of the day, my vote made no difference in the outcome. Uh, all I did was, again, represent the people of Cambridge. And apparently, I mean, I understand I was a parliamentary assistant to the, the ministry where this was coming out of. But again, I expressed my displeasure with this bill. 
I said very clearly, we need to be having discussions and votes about this. We cannot be muzzling our MPPs from speaking out against things because uh, in speaking with business owners in my riding, because I did do uh, uh, consultations during our, our lockdown, mm-hmm. and a lot of them are saying, you know, first it was we're closed for 15 days because, uh, you know, we need to flatten the curve. And then that became um, 100 plus days. And as much as, you know, now in Cambridge, we're in stage three, which is which is great. But a lot of my independent business owners are saying we can't have another shutdown. Like we cannot. And um, this is going to be the make make or break point for a lot of small businesses. And I mean, when it comes to a decision like that, if we were to get a second wave or whatever the case is and the premier decides to shut down again, uh, I can't speak on behalf of my constituents anymore because he's making that final decision. There is no vote. And I don't think people are aware of that. And, you know, as much as, you know, uh, people don't like certain aspects of the bill, really, it's that voting part that is the most important because it, there is no chance for your um, MPP to have any say on anything moving forward when it comes to these emergency measures. When I well, well, when your husband Jim was disqualified from the conservative leadership race, I had you and he on the show yeah. to talk about it. And at the time, I was sensing from you, and you were very diplomatic and gracious about it. But I, <laughs> I was sensing there was this growing discord between you and and the broader conservative establishment, which includes the the party in which you were uh, an MPP up until a couple of days ago, and. You know, clearly this came about, and I wasn't entirely shocked. And and from that story you just told, which I, I didn't know about the marijuana bill, it sounds like this has not been a, a new or a recent problem. It's it's not, and you know, I get that. You, you know, it's a super majority that the conservatives have. There's seventy plus seats. There's a lot of members. So being able to or, or allowing some of the um, elected representatives to have that freedom to vote as they will, because not all ridings are the same. Like we're not all Toronto. Uh, Cambridge is, is kind of a mix of rural and urban. Uh, we've got people in the North. Your constituents are going to want different things. And at the end of the day, you, I think you should be allowing your MPPs to some degree have some free votes because the only free vote I've had was the Pitbull ban. And what's unfair about that is I can't always justify my vote if I don't truly believe in what I'm voting for. And I think it's really important that if you don't like the way I voted on something, at least if I believed in it, I can justify that vote. Do you think that your vote against this particular bill was actually something that was egregious enough to the party and to the premier's office to get rid of you? Or do you think it was an excuse that they could use and, and that there was already uh, the fix was in, as they say? Um, I'm not really sure uh, either way on that. Um because there's two ways you can look at that. Like I know my again going back to my bill, Bill 150, they um, there was a lot of pushback on that bill. Um, you know, I, I heard people saying that I was being a troublemaker, but at the end of the day, asking for transparency and accountability in internal party elections when these individuals could eventually be elected into a position of power, uh, to me sounds pretty basic um, and and shocking that we, there would be any pushback from that. Um, and I'm not afraid to speak my mind at all. If I don't think something makes sense, I'm going to speak up. And I've always done that. And maybe this was just an easy easy out for them to get rid of me. Maybe. Um, Pardon me. Maybe maybe there were other things to this. But, uh, you know, it's it's a question I guess you'd have to ask um, the powers that be. And I certainly will do that. But where I'm, I guess, really unclear on this is that it must 
really serve as a warning shot to anyone else in caucus that would dare step out of line that this is what's going to happen. I mean, it's proven there's sort of a zero tolerance approach for for voting against or, or for in, in many cases even disagreeing. Now, I know you had a lot of relationships with people in the caucus. Do you yeah. think that you're alone in this fight? No, I, I know that I'm not alone. Uh, I and I, of course, I'm not going to disclose names because I still have I still have friends in that caucus. Truly, I mean, we worked together so closely for two years, and uh, there's some some good people there. And um, there were many that were very uncomfortable. But it was it was that weird conversation where, you know, you say, "Hey, I'm uncomfortable," and they agree, and then they kind of look down into the side because they don't even want to entertain the conversation for fear of dot dot dot. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, they're going to lose something. They're not going to get something. Whatever the case is, and it's really sad. Because, again, we were elected by people in an election to, to speak for them, to be their voice. People trust us. People trust you to make the right call uh, and to do the right thing. And it's sad because um, there is a lot of fear. And uh, I really hope that, you know, when I, when I, two years ago, when I was campaigning, I had so much hope, Andrew. So much hope because the Patrick Brown PC party, I thought was done. All of that corruption and everything that, that came under his uh, watch and, you know, uh, Doug Ford came in and said, free votes, and I'm only going to whip the votes if it's a budget vote, and, and uh, I'm going to get rid of the carbon tax. And there were so many things he was saying that I said, yes, yes, I can get behind this man. I can, I can campaign uh, for, the, for the PC party. You know, my hope was restored. And um, it was, it's been very disappointing. It's been very disappointing because aside from the whipped votes, aside from the fact that, yeah, we... Um, got rid of cap and trade. Well, we're still making big polluters pay, which essentially is, is going to come back down to to the grassroots anyway. It's just been one disappointment after the next. And like I said, I have been a team player. I've been a team player, and I've gone along and I've you know pushed the message. And this was just this was just it. Like you, you cannot tell me that uh, in any country or province or whatever the case is that it is okay for one person to have all the control, especially during a time when we have this COVID-19 pandemic, when people are already feeling vulnerable and fearful. I've seen that you've had a bit of praise from the NDP in Ontario. The Toronto Star had an editorial supporting your decision. This is not, uh, as we know, something that Conservatives are used to, and it probably won't extend to other things you speak up on in the future because they, they won't agree in that certain moment there. Have you had much support from Conservatives, any official Conservatives, for, uh, for lack of a better term? Yes. So um, I'll just say first that democracy isn't a conservative thing. Uh, I've spoken to um, members of the NDP and the other independent members. We all agree on this. Democracy is something I think everybody can agree on. Uh, can agree on. Pardon me. Um, and uh, I've, I've had a lot of support, again, from conservatives. I won't name names, but mm-hmm. I have had conservatives reach out to me saying, you did the right thing. Good for you. Hold your head up high. Uh, no, you know, I hope you can probably sleep well at night, that kind of uh, things and I've had some really great conversations with um, some members of the opposition and independent parties. Um, it's been amazing, truly, the amount of support I've received. It was a very, very hard decision uh, to actually get up and walk through the no lobby. It was extremely hard because I could have abstained, but at the end of the day, my constituents didn't ask me to not vote. They asked me to use my vote, uh, and I did. 
So let's turn from the past and present to the future here. I, I know that some MPPs have spoken up about the process. If you were to rejoin the PC caucus, caucus would have to vote on it. Is that something you're even interested in? And would there be circumstances under which you would entertain going back into this PC caucus if you were welcome? I think there's a few changes that need to occur before I would consider that. Uh, one definitely would be the freedom of expression and the freedom uh, to vote the way that my constituents need and want me to vote. Um, there are other changes. I won't get into those details now. Um, but if I were to be, you know, invited to join tomorrow and none of those changes have happened, I, I don't think I could go back. But there are circumstances under which it would at least be a discussion. Yeah, I mean, I'm always open to discussion. Um, I, I'm not so close-minded that I would just say no. I, I'd want to discuss more about it. Uh, it just, like I said, the whole thing is extremely disappointing because I really came into this two years ago with a lot of hope. Um, and maybe that's me b being naive, but uh, I, I'm i a Christian and I believe that uh, hope and faith are two things that uh, really help people get through their days. And um, I, I still haven't lost hope. I still think, think things can get better and they will get better, but not without people trying and people speaking up and people fighting for things that they believe in. I know this wasn't obviously the politically sound decision in many ways, because we know that independent legislators do not have a, a tremendous amount of power, although we do have in the legislature now a, a couple of you. And looking forward, I, I don't know if you've made a decision on this. It's an uphill battle if an independent is to run for election or even re-election. Uh, is that something you're considering at this point, running as an independent? Um, we'll, we'll see. I mean, it's two years out to the next election, so there, that's still quite a lot of time. Um, so, you know, I'm going to take everything day by day. I have uh, very much enjoyed my time thus far uh, representing Cambridge. Um, it's a wonderful community and, you know, we have very specific um, needs in this in this community uh, and things that we don't want in this community. Uh, I was I've been fighting for a long time to ensure that we get more um, prevention and treatment for those suffering from addiction. You know, the, the community in Cambridge has spoken very loudly about not wanting an injection site. I've been a very loud voice at that table. Um, things are not going to change in the way that I serve them. I'll continue to advocate for them and continue to ensure that, you know, I am reaching out to the appropriate ministries. Like I said, I've developed relationships with, these, with those in the PC caucus over the last two years, and I don't expect things to change in that regard. Um, I know another thing that's come up is conscious rights for physicians. That was a campaign promise. That's something that's come up quite a few times in the constituency. I'll continue to fight for that as well. So there's quite a few things still um, that need to get done that I'll continue to fight for. And, um, you know, my door is always open, as I've always said to my constituents, and it's uh, nothing is going to change for them. Belinda Carajalios, MPP for Cambridge in Ontario. Thank you very much for coming on today. Thank you so much for having me, Andrew. It's always a pleasure. That was Ontario Member of the Provincial Parliament, Belinda Carajalios. And she had mentioned something in that that I, I think was important. The Doug Ford had always been very unequivocal on free votes for MPPs. And there was actually a quote uh, that uh, David Haynes, who's a, a reporter with Q uh, Queen's Park Briefing, had tweeted out. And I read that quote, and I'm like, this looks really familiar. And it was actually a, a quote from a debate that I hosted on my former radio show, a progressive conservative party of Ontario leadership debate, in which Doug Ford gave a, a very unequivocally clear position on free votes. And I, I was able to dig up the clip. So here's that. I want to give Doug a chance to chime in on this one. Well, first of all, I, I, I believe everyone has the right to vote 
the way they, they believe. The, on, the only vote I'm going to require our team to vote on is the budget, to make sure that we vote together on, on the budget. So the fact that Belinda Carajalios was kicked out for voting against a bill that wasn't a confidence bill. She wasn't voting to trigger the downfall of government. She was just saying, listen, this is not the way to do it. Suggests that there was actually a desire already, a concerted desire to get her out of the caucus. And and she was not able to say for or against whether that happened, but it just seemed like she had that reputation as being a troublemaker. That was her admission, that people were calling her that, not that she actually was that. So it seems like people just wanted to get her out. And I, I think it's a profound loss. I, I've known Belinda Carajalios for years. She's a, a passionate advocate. She's not controversial. She's not, even Jim has said, uh, I think when I spoke to them last, like, you know, he gets why everyone finds you know him to be a troublemaker but she's not everyone likes her and it's very upsetting that you know she now no longer has a seat in the government that i ran as a candidate for Uh, i supported her candidacy i was myself uh, potentially going to be an mpp at this point in that party and in that government so uh, it's very very unsettling when principal decisions get you thrown out to the curb we've got to take a break when we come back more of the andrew lawton show here on true north You're tuned in to The Andrew Lawton Show. Welcome back to The Andrew Lawton Show. Just a reminder that coming up on Wednesday is the Independent Press Gallery Conservative Leadership Debate hosted by my friend and colleague Candace Malcolm and moderated by yours truly. We've got all four candidates confirmed and we're going to be broadcasting it live at independentpressgallery.ca and it'll also be on True North as well. So on Facebook or YouTube, you should be able to access it. But uh, certainly independentpressgallery.ca slash debate is going to be the main home for that. And listen, it's going to be an absolutely fantastic night. We hope you're all able to tune in. And if you can't catch it live, we'll have the archive available uh, probably that night, but certainly the day after. So thanks very much for all the words of encouragement I've received from you on that. Let's go before I talk to John Carpe from the Justice Center for Constitutional Freedoms to this story from CBC. Effective immediately, CBC's Mervyn Brass writes, CBC Sports will stop the use of indigenous names in reference to teams and symbols. This will be reflected in all published work across CBC Sports and CBC Olympics platforms. So this means that if CBC Sports is running a story about the Cleveland Indians, they'll have to call it the Cleveland or the Cleveland team. Or if they're talking about anyone else that has a name that they deem problematic, they won't actually do their job and report it. They will just ignore it, find a way around it. This is hugely problematic to use the term of the left social justice warrior mob, because if the name of a team is something to decide that you are going to unilaterally not use that team name in coverage is actually to push an agenda over actually reporting the news, over covering the news, over covering facts. I'm all for people that want to talk to teams and say, listen, I think you need to change the name. I want people to be able to, in a free country, stand up and say, we think the Redskins should change, the Eskimos, the Indians, the Atlanta Braves, whatever the case may be. Regardless of what I think about those names, people have the right to take out their grievances with the teams. But for the media to push an agenda 
means they're not actually reporting. And we know that media does this. We know there's a media bias from the mainstream, certainly in CBC, but there's something particularly chilling here. And even if you aren't a fan of the indigenous team names or symbols or mascots, for a media outlet to say, we are not going to refer to a team by its name. What if they start to say, oh, you know what? We're not going to refer to this building by its name. We're not going to refer to this uh, statue. We're not going to refer to this street by its name because all of these have a history that we don't want to avoid. Well, we'd say that's ridiculous. So why are we endorsing something like that happening at the reporting level, at the journalism outlet level when it comes to a team name? So uh, this is something, again, it's beyond the names themselves and the symbology and the terminology. It is agenda pushing, pure and simple, and it is done so brazenly and proudly too, which I, I think is the most dangerous part. And CBC is getting praise heaped on them rather than criticism from this. So that was why I tweeted out about it. In any case, we are going to talk about the politics of lockdown here. When I was at the Freedom Talk conference in Calgary last weekend, or I guess it was a week and a half ago now, I sat down with John Carpe, who's the president of the Justice Center for Constitutional Freedoms, and we spoke about some of the legal challenges that are going forward against governments that have put in a great many emergency orders and other things, including mask mandates, which originally it was just Guelph, and then we started to see other cities follow suit. Uh, the most notable of them is Toronto, my own city, London, Ontario, cities across the country that now require you to wear a mask. Now, are these orders constitutional? Are they legal? Wanted to get to the bottom of that with Justice Center President John Carpe. John, it's always good to talk to you. Good to be with you. So we have had, I mean, so many big cases in the last few years, but in the last few months, it seems like we've had more with jurisdictions that have put all of these emergency orders, that have shut down businesses, that have threatened churches, that have in even recent days imposed mask orders on populations. Are any of these, in your view, going to stand up if challenged and when challenged? And I know you've pushed for a lot of these things. Well, it's all happened so fast, right? Because in March... You know, there are the scary numbers are out there. Uh, Neil Ferguson in, of Imperial College in London was saying as many as 510,000 people in the United Kingdom would die of COVID and 2.2 yeah. million Americans would die of COVID. Uh, in Alberta, Jason Kenney and the uh, chief medical officer said as many as 32,000 people would die of COVID. So there's a lot of fear and... Uh, kind of one thing led to another and now here we are four months later we still have all these restrictions so the underlying principle is that that two things one this is a violation of our charter freedoms to move travel assemble associate worship clearly these are charter violations even putting on masks is a violation of our charter right to life liberty security of the person right when the government starts to dictate intimate details about what i'm required to wear or, or prohibited from wearing, uh, that's very much liberty interest. Politicians can violate our charter freedoms provided that they demonstrably justify those violations as necessary and beneficial. And that's the bottom line. So with that, it sounds like the emergency powers and the emergency authority that governments have used to justify these are fairly broad. And it sounds like when you stack them up against the charter, the charter loses. Well, see, we haven't had a court action and we, we may have a court action down the road. If there was a court action uh, going taking place right now, the government would have to actually 
fully explore all of the harms of the lockdown. So everything from increases in stress, anxiety, depression, suicides, alcoholism, spousal abuse, child abuse, family violence, deaths from canceled surgery, uh, deaths and, and permanent health damage caused by people not being able to access medical care because hospitals were more or less closed, so on and so forth. They'd have to look at all the harms and they would have to actually prove that the lockdowns have saved lives and not just make an assertion. And then they have to weigh the two. But because there's no court action on the go, it's kind of sad. Politicians seem to be neither putting forward evidence to show that the lockdowns have saved lives, they're not putting forward any evidence, nor are they fully exploring all the harms that have been caused. So they're failing on both fronts. Yeah, and flatten the curve is not a legal argument, and stay home, save lives is not a legal argument. So all of these things, and by the way, I would say that public health officials are not constitutional scholars, and they would admit to that, but they're the ones that it seems like in many cases, certainly at the federal level, that have been given carte blanche to make these determinations. And uh, in a lot of ways, it's very difficult for anyone as a Canadian to see how you have any real transparency here when Justin Trudeau, who's elected, is outsourcing his decision-making to Dr. Theresa Tam, who's unelected? Well, some people have called it a medical dictatorship, <laughs> and uh, the, the, the premiers are abdicating their responsibility to the opinions of one medical doctor uh, in each province, uh, whose, whose opinions, by the way, are not always shared by all doctors. So even there, there's debate, you know, yes, are, yes. are masks really helpful or not necessary or not. Uh, this is quite a problem constitutionally where you've got this big transfer of power to unaccountable, unelected medical doctors. And it's not, I think it's more the fault of the premiers abdicating their responsibilities to set overall public policy mm -hmm. rather than, because if you put, you know, one doctor in charge, I mean, you know, what if you put one engineer in charge or one teacher in charge. I mean, it, that, that's not how democracy works. And I think when you say that these haven't had court hearings yet, there's a positive in that because when there has been some pushback, it's been interesting to see how, in some cases, the state has backed off. One notable example was the Church of God in Elmer, Ontario. The, they were told, threatened by police for having drive-in services at a time when we were being told, don't go indoors. So they said, okay, everyone stay in your cars. The Justice Centre took on that case. And without having to go to court, I think just the threat of legal action caused police to back off the province, it sounded like, called... Uh, th there to be a, a backing off of that. And same as a lot of these tickets that people have been given for walking their dog, for rollerblading, for doing all of these things. I, I think when there has been pushback, these things have not been fought by the government. And it's terrible that they're kind of just accepting that most people won't challenge it. Well, it's sad. I mean, so, some of these people with the $1,200 tickets for, you know, a teenager playing basketball by himself. I mean, Outside, I, like you're not spreading COVID to anybody, and, and uh, the, my understanding is the transmission in outdoors is, is next to. Well, and, and in, he was socially distanced until the bylaw enforcement officers walked onto the basketball court to give him the ticket. That's the great irony of it all. Yeah, I wonder if you could ward off a ticket per permanently by saying, "Oh, social distancing. Yeah, you can't yeah. receive the tickets. Yeah, you got to stay six feet away coughing. from me." That might help. <laughs> so, you know, one of the things, and I said this early on in the process, that I, I would like there to be a, a sense of community where people just do the right thing because 
it's the moral right to do. And, and people, you know, stay clear and respect other people's boundaries. And, and the second that becomes something that the state has to mandate, the discussion changes dramatically. And I've been disappointed, and I'm, I'm curious for your perspective on this, John, at how Canadians so willingly hand it over in a time of crisis, yes, but also a time when I think we need to hold true to our values and our rights, so willingly handed them over. Well, there's an interesting book, 1941, Eric Frum, called uh, Escape from Freedom. And he argues that there's part of human nature that actually hates freedom and would rather be uh, controlled by some uh, authority. And so you have an authoritarian personality that actually likes to get pushed around and told what to do, and it's very unhealthy. So, you know, these are big battles. These are big cultural battles because ultimately, even though our, our Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms is very important, what's even more important is what's in the hearts and in the minds of people. If people love freedom and if they like to live as responsible adults that are not being managed by uh, a master government like a bunch of cattle, so if people actually want to be free human beings with dignity who are adults who make their own choices about their own lives and accept responsibility for those choices, that's really ultimately where the free society is going to rise or fall, uh, uh, sink or, or swim, based on Canadians being willing to uh, live as adults and be treated as adults by their own government. The Charter can play a role in helping that, but the biggest battle is uh, cultural for the hearts and minds of uh, what's going on with, with people uh, on the inside. Well, and I'm glad that in that battle, your side is certainly not letting up. John Carpe of the Justice Centre, we thank you for all that you do for freedoms and uh, certainly for all that your uh, group is doing with True North as well in, in our fight for freedom. Always a pleasure. Thank you. And that was my interview from a week and a half ago with John Carpe. And I'd hoped that I would never get to use it, that, you know, we would all just wake up in a free utopia libertarian society and we wouldn't need to talk about legal challenges against the government. But alas, things have only gotten worse since then. Take a look at Trinity Bellwoods Park in Toronto, for example, when people were initially called COVIDiots for just having picnics and hanging out with their friends. And now police are busting people for drinking in this park. We're not talking about mass riots or raves or anything like that. We're talking about people that bring a bottle of wine or a bottle of, I don't know what kids drink these days, champagne, coolers, palm bays, I don't know, bring in just a couple of drinks and having a good old time at the park on a weekend. And yes, I know that it's illegal. My point here is that no one is getting harmed. And I'm a big believer in the fact that stupid laws are not things that we should be celebrating the enforcement of. And look, this is coming after police decided that, and politicians decided, that mass protests were completely fine, but now they've got to start cracking skulls if people dare to have a drink in a park on a weekend on an otherwise sunny and beautiful day. So thankfully, there was a, a bit of a resident patrol here. Residents were on social media warning people that police were on the prowl. It sounds like from one tweet here, a dozen officers biking around all the while no one was even like replenishing the soap in the public washrooms during the pandemic. So talk about priorities from the government. They're going to get their revenue but that's about all they're going to focus on. We have to wrap things up on Wednesday. There's not going to be an Andrew Lawton show as usual because we have, as I mentioned earlier, the conservative leadership debate. And I do hope you tune into that and we will talk to you soon. From me to you, thank you, God bless, and good day, Canada. Thanks for listening to the Andrew Lawton Show. Support the program by donating to True North at www.tnc.news.